Hey everyone, welcome back to the next episode of Physique Science Radio. Today we've got a really fun guest, uh, for me anyway, uh, because this is, this is in the realm of behavioral psychology, and we've got Dr. Mark Ferries on board. Uh, I met Dr. Mark Ferries last month at the ISSN National Conference in Austin, Texas. Uh, so it's kind of a funny story how we met. I'm, I'm kind of glad I didn't meet him when I when he saw me presenting. I was talking about um, for the pre-conference. I was talking about um, how to increase dietary adherence in your, with your clients, and you know, it was all I was talking about all about behavior change and habits and all these things. And turns out, Dr. F- uh, Mark Ferries was listening to me speak, and I had no idea he was in the audience, which is probably a good thing. I think I would have been stumbling over my words if I'd known. But uh, later that evening, at the um, we had a dinner with all the speakers and the advisory board, and he was sat right next to me. So we got to talk, talking, and then come to find out he was uh, scheduled to speak. I think it was uh, one or two days later on pretty much the same topic, but from a slightly different angle, um, talking about that uh, you know the behavior gap. So uh, I obviously showed up to listen to his talk, and it ended up being by far my favorite. Um, I think that behavioral uh, behavior change is one of the most overlooked aspects of the fitness industry, the health and fitness industry. So it's really exciting for me when I see and meet other people who are just as crazy about it as I am. Uh, so Dr. Ferries, can you, um, thanks for being on today, by the way, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you got into um, psychology, how you became interested in behavior change? You bet, yeah, thanks for having me, and um, that dinner we had was pretty good, wasn't it, too, the, the buffet Oh, we it had. was so good. Some kind of, we had like a watermelon um, uh, pine nut side dish or something I remember anyway I remember thinking it was delicious I was highly impressed it was very good well yeah thanks for having me so um, I am currently an associate professor at Stephen F Austin State University Um, I also hold an adjunct position assistant professor position with the Texas A&M College of Medicine and the uh, health and kinesiology uh, department at Texas A&M as well so these three angles, so to speak, sort of allow me to continue on three major areas of my research, but they're all associated with behavior, uh, more specifically behavioral medicine uh, and or cognitive functioning. So in short, um, the, the quick history is uh, after undergraduate work, I worked in the fitness industry full time as a personal trainer for about four and a half years. Um, within that time, I started training trainers, and I realized that I did not know enough. And so I was out of the state, out of Texas at the time. I was in California for several years and then Atlanta area. Um, I decided to go back and get my master's. At that time, Dr. Kreider uh, was at Baylor, and they had some great things going on, a, a wide array of research from biomechanics to biochemistry in the exercise physiology realm. And so I I was lucky enough to go there and uh, I got my master's in exercise physiology. However, during that time, even though I was there to really expand what I knew about the physiology side, I kept thinking that 
look, I know what to tell people. It just I was getting more and more frustrated because they weren't doing it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I was lucky again there too. Uh, Dr. Rafer Lutz uh, sort of put me under his wing as, as several mentors did there at Baylor. Um, but he was especially impactful because uh, he was an exercise and sport psychologist. He ended up chairing my thesis where we looked at adherence to a weight training program in, in novice female weight trainers. Um, and uh, everybody but two, two women dropped out of the study. So it just reemphasized yeah. uh, within six weeks. So it reemphasized what I was sort of thinking and feeling anyway. Well, I was actually planning to go back to USC uh, out in California at uh, the med school there for my, my doctorate. Well, I had a year waiting on funding, and so I took a job uh, teaching at the University of Central Oklahoma for one year, um, which was really great for me because uh, I hadn't been able to teach at that level as much as I had wanted. And so I started teaching. I was waiting. The long story short, during that one year, as I met Dr. John Bartholomew, and I was introduced to him, um, and he is also an exercise and sports psychology with a background in exercise physiology, and so we really connected, and so I made the decision to go pursue my doctorate with him, and he was at the university, and still is, um, at the University of Texas. And so I decided to go there, and my degree was in behavioral health, um, and the beauty of it was that even though I tell people I made the switch over to the psychology world, I, I really haven't fully. Um, and so I sort of sit in between exercise physiology and exercise psychology, um, the performance enhancement, the physiological side and the, the psychological side. In my mind, we don't really separate these things out. Uh, the psychology tells us a lot. <laughs> The physiological response or the performance and then vice versa. And so that's where I'm where I am now. Um, I guess that's sort of the background of how I got to where I am. You see, uh, Lane, you see why I like this guy? We always yeah. say, Lane always says you can't separate physiology from psychology. And it's completely 100%. I agree with that. It's funny. We just had my, my PhD advisor on last time, Dr. Don Lehman. And he <laughs> said something almost verbatim that, that so he had said. Yeah. Previously, and so you just said something almost verbatim that I say quite a bit. So that's that's, that's funny. Uh, yeah, it's very cool. Uh, I think it's interesting that especially the last three guests we've had. So we had Dr. Stu Phillips on, and then uh, Dr. Don Lehman, and then now yourself. And and basically, um, what all three of you said in ter- the common thread about getting into graduate school was, um, you got done with undergrad and you just didn't feel. I don't want to say qualified, but you had these questions that were still unanswered and mm-hmm. uh, just didn't, you just weren't comfortable with not knowing answers. And that's, it, it reminds me very much of kind of where I was. I, I said, well, you know, I don't, I'm not ready to go off in the real world yet. And I have all these questions and I don't feel like a quote unquote professional. So I'm just going to delay the real world a little bit and, and go to grad school. <laughs> yeah. I think that is one, one big take, you know, the thing about academics I've learned over the years is that um, we never really get upset when we don't know anything. That doesn't bother us because we're pretty confident we can go learn it. Uh-huh. And I think that sort of mentality is very beneficial for academics and researchers and 
even though we might be feeling we're delaying the real world, we, we soon find that uh, we can make a a world with this, you know, and pursue these questions. And, you know, the, the fact that I can answer research questions that nobody has ever answered before sort of fuels that, that, that mentality. But yeah, it usually starts with, um, oh, now I'm stuck with a Kines degree. What am I going to do with that? But <laughs> you're exactly. exactly. Yeah, no, the, um, I think uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson said it very well. He said, scientists live on the edge of ignorance. So yes. we're, we're out there on the edge of what we don't know, trying to push that boundary a little bit. So with that said, uh, tell us, so I can kind of get an idea of where your research has gone. Uh, it seems to me, it, it sounds like that when you were working with people, that your frustration probably stemmed from the fact that, like you said, you could you knew what to tell them, but you just couldn't get them to stick to it. Is that is that kind mm -hmm. of what I'm gathering here? That's exactly right. You know, we have what's called the intention behavior gap, um, where we're trying to increase intention first. But just because people intend to do things does not mean they carry through with that. And so um, I actually, I, I like both. I, I think most of the people I work with and the patients that we see in our research do have some level of intention. And so there is a line of research of how do you get somebody to want to care? Uh, we usually have people that already care. They just can't make it happen and don't know how. And they yo-yo they up and down over the past and so you're exactly right, Lane. That's who we're working with. Um, and what are the things that would separate someone that can be successful versus the person that cannot? Why does um, one person change and not another? If we tell one patient she uh, is, has prediabetes, uh, she may flip out and change everything, start eating healthy, be active, um, get her family involved, as best she can, but then there might be another patient. We tell her she's pre-diabetic and um, just says, "Oh, my blood sugar's high," and, mm -hmm. and doesn't do anything. And so that that's very intriguing to me. You know what I love about this, um, and I don't I don't remember I don't remember if we talked about it a month ago, but when you talk about the intention behavior gap, that reminds me of how so many people, especially when it comes to uh, making uh, health changes, to let's say you want to lose body fat, you want to lean out. They just say, you got to want to, you got to want to bad enough. You have to have the discipline. You need to just try harder. And I'm sitting here thinking that I don't think that's actually it. I think, you know, there is obviously there is some degree of motivation required, but you can't just have, you just, if you have a desire, that's great. But if you don't know how to put that into motion, that's the big problem. And I think that um, there's so much misinformation out there regarding behavior change and, uh, everyone, you know, it's, it seems like it's common sense. It seems like it's just intuitive. You know, well, obviously, you just have to have a lot of discipline. Um, but it's, I think it's pretty off the mark. What do you say? Well, I think yes and no. I, I agree with you. So, he, you know, people that are consistent with their behavior, it's, over time, it's become more habitual. Um, there was just some new research that came out uh, last week that was talking about um, – behavior that was cued and that people, their alarm would go off and their automatic response was to get up and go to the gym or mm -hmm. they'd get off work and their automatic response was just to go exercise or get home and automatic response was to cook a healthy dinner. You know, we, we, we form these, uh, this, what we call automaticity, this, this automatic sort of responses to cues in the environment. 
And the people that are successful for the long term tend to have this uh, sense of automaticity in both the dietary and uh, exercise or activity part of their life. The, the problem is, is getting to that point where a habit is formed. Uh-huh. Uh, right. Here's 21 days, but Dr. Lagley in London, she found that with health behaviors, it was somewhere between 18 and 256 days. Uh, with with 66, I think, on average. And this was behaviors like eating a piece of fruit with lunch, just adding a very small um, change to the daily routine toward a healthy behavior. And and it still took some people 250-plus days to make that more automatic. And so I I guess, yes, uh, the people that are consistent don't need need the motivation. Uh Uh, you also consider what type of motivation the person has. Um, I think that's one thing to really consider because most people don't think about, oh, I didn't know I could have multiple types of motivation. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, and so the most successful, well, I'll tell you this, most people that exercise and eat healthy, healthily more consistently have what's called a, a self-determined form of motivation and that's actually an extrinsic form. So they're doing it for mainly really, it's for an entr- outcome. Really? Yeah. It'd so be intrinsic. That, Interesting. Well, we, we, we develop that. So for most people, it is extrinsic because why are we exercising? Well, to maintain a body image, to uh, lose a little fat, put on a little muscle, um, maybe get some um, stress reduction out of it or whatever, you know, win a race. So there are a lot of people that exercise and eat healthily for for a goal. The the big separation though is that there's two types of this extrinsic. The best is this self-determined, meaning yes, I'm doing this at least in part for an outcome. Um, you know, I always admit I work out for body image reasons. That's my number one reason. So if I say I just want to look good naked, that's a self-determined type of extrinsic motivation. Yes, because you <laughs> said I. I, I mean, most people I feel like. <laughs> yeah. Yes, because I, I want to do that. So okay. it, it's an outcome, right? So it's extrinsic goal. It's not inherent to that behavior. Um, but uh, oh. the, so you're doing it for a goal. Now, if if people feel they're being forced, and what what uh, health professionals, exercise uh, professionals, um, even doctors don't realize sometimes is that they are the culprits of the worst type of motivation mm-hmm. in patients and clients because uh, they tell them they have to do this. I said earlier about the motivation thing. You say, you got to do this. All you got to do is just do it. Well, if the patient comes out of that, the client comes out of that and says, well, I have to do this because so-and-so is making me. Well, mm-hmm. they're doing it for an outcome, but it's it, now it's other determined. Uh, okay. In the long run, we don't want that. Um, that that doesn't tend to stick. Now, if I don't want to go to the gym tonight, and I have a buddy waiting on me, and I go because he was there, then afterwards I feel pretty good about it. You know, from time to time, this other determines not terrible, right? But for the long run, we don't want people to exist there. Uh-huh. And we want them to be more self-determined because the nature, the the honest truth is that health, fitness, body image, this world. Is highly driven by goals and so as soon as you add a goal that's extrinsic to the behavior such as weight loss weight control looking good naked um, feeling a certain way winning a race performance enhancement it is now an extrinsic goal 
and we have to be self-determined. You did mention intrinsic motivation, which mm-hmm. uh, that's that's by far the best. And what happens is over time, the more consistent, the more uh, automatic people become with their exercise and dietary behavior, the more intrinsic it becomes. Um, now, some people can find a physical activity, for example, that's intrinsically motivating from the get-go. Let's say um, going going for a nice walk on a spring day. Um, the weather's perfect. Um, I just, yeah, I'm probably benefiting from this, but I'm going on the walk just because I inherently enjoy that walk. Well, that's an intrinsically motivated behavior. Um, the the problem is is that that's fleeting. If it's snowing out or it's really, really hot, now that walk is not as enjoyable inherently. And so it turns, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to need to force myself to do it for some outcome or find some alternative. So uh, we do want people to be intrinsically motivated and find the options that they already are intrinsically motivated, even down to the food. If you like broccoli, eat the broccoli because you like it. Um, If it also applies to your health, then great. But from the get-go, you're doing it for intrinsic reasons. Okay, so to, okay, I have to ask you, <clears throat> if let's say, because I want, I think I know what type of motivation it is, but I want to confirm with you. Let's say that uh, I had a really bad day yesterday. Nothing was going right. IRS was after me. You know all this stuff. Um, and then I'm really frustrated. I say, okay, I can't. I can't wait to work out. This is gonna make me feel better because this is, you know, let's say, you know, lifting weights is my form of therapy. And I go lift weights and I take my frustrations out on squatting. And at the end of the session, I'm like, wow, I feel so much better. Was that, would that be a form of uh, intrinsic motivation, would you say? Well, it could be if you inherently enjoy that right. the squatting, right? So I love it. Yeah, it, it, it's not if, you, if you're doing it just for the stress reduction. Interesting. So could, maybe it could be a combination of both. Yeah, you bet. Um, Interesting. And one way to think about the intrinsic motivation is, like, would you, would you still do squats if it did not give you any benefits? Or would you struggle oh. to stop squatting if it made you look worse and naked? Huh. That's a really great way of framing it. Right. I, so if you would, like, if you like, I know this is making me look worse naked, but man, I just love these squats so much, then that's probably a good sign that it's strongly intrinsically motivated. But if you're like, well, you know, hell no, I'm not doing that, um, then that's a sign that it's probably not intrinsically motivated. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because um, I remember I was giving a, a seminar a, a while back and people were talking about genetics and all this sort of stuff. And I had mentioned about how long I'd been lifting. You know, I've been doing this for 15 years mm-hmm. and that, you know, I'm, I'm just not. Like the idea that I'm going to gain like five pounds of muscle, it's just, it's not going to happen. You know, it's the same, I'm not going to put a hundred pounds on my, on my powerlifting total in a year either. Like that's just not like the, the wins for me are going to be very small at this point. And somebody said, isn't that really demotivating to you? And I said, mm-hmm. no, not really. Um, you know, when I add a pound, I, I, you know, it, 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 in a way, like I actually feel more accomplished because I had to struggle so much harder to, to make that progress. And uh, I've told people, I said, listen, even if I, even if you had a crystal ball and you could tell me you'll never gain another ounce of muscle and you'll never get stronger at all, I, I would still go in and work out just because I like it. You know, I yeah. like the challenge. I like, now it would, it would be, you know, 
would I have as much fun as if I wasn't making progress? But no, no. But at the same time, like we know that's going to happen. Like I know that's going to, at some point my performance will start to fall off as I get older. Like I just know that's going to happen. doesn't mean I'm going to stop lifting weights. So that's interesting that I've never heard it verbalized like that, but it was kind of like, as you're going down that checklist, I'm like, yes, I am intrinsically motivated to work out and squat. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And people are, and that's wonderful. And you, we don't have to, the beauty of intrinsic motivation is that this intention behavior gap, right? How do we keep this this gear system of a brain that we have going and managing and self-monitoring and overcoming barriers? You won't have that with weightlifting, Lane. You just go and do it because right. you enjoy it. If I have my favorite book, I just read it because I love it. Uh-huh. I mean, we've right. all watched the show How It's Made, right? Y'all have seen that? I've seen a few episodes, yeah. Right, so why do we watch that show or the, the History Channel you know, that's, that's a good uh, example of an intrinsically motivating just to learn. Uh, and we find yeah. that with professionals working with patients and clients, uh, there, there are three major sources of intrinsic motivation. Like uh, the first one is to, to know. And so anytime we can learn new things, such as the History Channel or how it's made, um, that can be an intrinsically motivated source uh, to accomplish something and meet optimal challenges. So Lane... You're talking about those little, even a one pound gain, um, even half a pound from your hard work um, is not uh, a motivating or demotivating. It's actually motivating because to you, one pound is a pretty optimal challenge. Um, five pounds might be an unrealistic challenge. Right. And, and so if we set faulty goals and people, we, we do this all the time. Um, and we don't reach those goals, then yes, it's, it's motivating. There is this idea of, of what are called stretch goals and that if we push ourselves beyond what we're really capable, uh, it'll make us succeed. But I don't think everybody responds positively to that. And the research is pretty, uh, it's pretty. So stretch goals, is that referring to physical limits or, uh, can it be anything like, uh, psychological, mental, Uh, From what I understand, it's more psychological. It's more, um, Ah. it's got a physical component, you know, like a behavioral component. But uh, stretch goals, I I wouldn't know, I don't know that it used, well, I know it's used, but as far as researched from the physical side, like I'm going to, you know, put 10 extra pounds on the bar type physical stretch goal. But uh, I think, yeah, you know, if Lane sets some goals to increase his, PR in the deadlift, for example, uh, and he set a goal that was just well above what he's normally physical capable of doing in a certain amount of time. You could consider that a stretch goal. Yeah, mm, interesting. Gotcha. So that, uh, in other words, as Dave Ramsey says, big, hairy, audacious goal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I think we're going to take a quick commercial break on that one, but I, I want to come back and and uh, follow up with that question when we come back. You're listening to Physique Science Radio. Hey guys, Lane here. Well, you all know how much I love variety in my diet. I can't stand eating the same bland food every single day. That's why I love www.myoatmeal.com. It's an amazing website where you can go and customize oatmeal. I know, I know, I know. Why would I want to go customize oatmeal? I can eat it right out of the bag. Well, let me tell you why. 
MyOatmeal.com has 22 billion combinations of flavors and ingredients. You heard me right. 22 billion combinations. Whether you're picking out a pre-made blend or making your own customized blend, they have all kinds of flavors. Want red velvet cake? No problem. Snickerdoodle? You can make it happen. Butter rum? Oh yeah. Cheesecake? You can get it done. And you have all kinds of additives you can add. Apples, raisins, pears, nuts, all kinds of seeds. And you can sweeten it any way you want. Need to eat gluten-free? No problem. They've got it. The best part of it all? The macros are listed as you're customizing your blend. And they change depending on which ingredients you add. Eating a little bit lower carb? No problem. Choose ingredients that make your carb count lower. Need more protein? Add higher protein ingredients. You can customize your blend to make it almost any breakdown that you want. And the prices and macros change as you change your blend. So go on over to www.myoatmeal.com and check out some of the blends that have already been made. Or be adventurous and make your own. That's myoatmeal.com. Check it out, guys. Hey guys, many of you out there know I spend a lot of time bagging on bad coaches. And certainly, there's more than enough of those to go around. But a lot of times people ask me who I do recommend. Well, one person we can recommend wholeheartedly is Paul Ravella of Pro Physique. Paul has received more referrals from me over the last two years than any other coach, and with good reason. Paul is competent, professional, caring, and carries himself with a lot of integrity. If you hire Paul, you're going to be getting the very best at a great value. Paul is also one of my closest personal friends, and I can say with absolute certainty, I feel 100% comfortable with referring my closest friends and family to him, because I've done that. Paul Ravella of ProPhysique.com. Check him out, guys. Hey guys, you know me and you know I love cooking up macro-friendly option meals. But sometimes when I'm always on the go, that's just not an option. So when I'm on the go or can't cook a meal, I love Quest Bars. You know I love protein and fiber and these are packed with 20 grams of high quality protein and super high in fiber. And it's easy to stay on target when you've got Quest Bars that you can bring with you anywhere. They're delicious compared to other bars that taste like bricks and leave you feeling gassy and bloated. So pick up a bar of Quest Bars today at questnutrition.com, GNC, and Vitamin Shop. Also, follow them on Instagram at questnutrition and youtube.com slash questnutrition for great recipe ideas to keep you on your goals but eating delicious. We're back on Physique Science Radio, and we've got Dr. Mark Ferries here with us, and uh, we're talking about goal setting and uh, the psychology behind goals and uh, and behavior change. And uh, Dr. Ferries, uh, we were talking about kind of uh, setting stretch goals and how some people respond favorably to that and some people don't. And I, you know, I coach people for a living, and I have observed this that some some of my clients, I can really challenge them. And they respond extremely well to that. And I, I actually kind of fall into that category too, that when I'm, when I'm challenged, um, I tend to, 
to, it, it, it actually excites me. Um, mm -hmm. I remember uh, when I was getting ready for the Arnold uh, powerlifting meet, a week out, uh, the, my training was going great. A week out, I hurt my lower back and I could barely get out of uh, out off the couch. And I was able to, uh, I had healed up a little bit, um, but I wasn't 100% going in. And I, but I remember thinking to myself, well, if I do go in and win, this is going to be really awesome because I had this extra other thing I had to actually overcome. And so it actually like made me more excited to go mm -hmm. compete, if that sounds weird. Um, whereas I've noticed some people that if you give them that stretch goal, if you say, hey, we got to do that, like they'll just, it'll almost be like a shut off button. They'll just completely shut down and won't even want to go after it at all. Is that, is that, so that's just my observations. Is that supported by any kind of data? Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, and a couple of things. Um, uh, the, the first thing is before we get too far, Lane, what you did was is called self handicapping. Um, <laughs> Self-handicapping. So, yeah, if, if you've heard of that. So, uh, Sohi, are you any good at tennis? Um, no, I'm not. Right, let's pretend you are, and <laughs> Sohi and I are going to play tennis, but I have two tennis rackets, and one I do not want to lose to Sohi and get embarrassed. So That would be pretty embarrassing. That would be. <laughs> I, have two, I have two tennis rackets. One is really really good it's expensive they only made five in the world type racket the second racket is really crummy racket from you know garage sale it's not even oval anymore it's missing strings and so these are the two rackets we have and so what i do which racket do i give Sohi? i give her the the good racket because if so he wins why did she win I had the better racket. Right. Or you can say that. Oh, and you can say I beat you even though I had the the crummy right, one. Right. That's right. And so we we maximize when we self handicap or we stay up too late for an exam or uh, you know sometimes we don't bring it on to ourselves. You know, Lane. Sometimes we get sick or injured or whatever, and um, we we have this sort of out. If we still do well despite that, then we've maximized the self. We. Um, we've increased our self-preservation, but if we do bad, um, we can always um, kind of put it off on whatever that thing was, right? Oh, I didn't do well because of this or that. Well, that still preserves the self. And so a lot of our motivation comes from self-preservation um, and our identity and our self-concept, who we believe we are. And we, we do and try to protect that. And to some degree, I think that's healthy. Uh, but at times, if we're faced with a goal um, that immediately is, is potential threat to that self-concept, like with some of your clients, then, yeah, it's not going to be motivating to do that. And you've heard, uh, do I perceive this stressor as a challenge or a threat? Uh, I think goals can be perceived in that same way. In our research, we look at uh, EEG brain activity, specifically in the frontal lobe. And um, in the past research in psychology, they've shown that in a certain stressor, like if you watched a, a scary movie clip, for example, the right frontal lobe is, is quite a bit more active than the left frontal lobe. But if you were to watch a um, romantic Matthew McConaughey comedy or something <laughs> like that, the left frontal lobe would be higher than the right frontal lobe. So you have this asymmetry of activity in the frontal lobe, right versus left or left versus right. 
Well, what this tells us, if the right side is more active than the left, then that is what's called an avoidant motivation or an avoidant orientation compared to if the left is higher than the right, that's an approach motivation. So what we did is we put, uh, we brought women in and the first study was that uh, with women that were all normal weight. Uh, and so they just ran through a, a very common weight body comp testing session that we all do in the doctor's office and in the gym. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we gave them their results. Uh, how many, what, well, I guess their total body fat percentage and how many pounds of fat they had, how much they weighed, what was their BMI. Well, we found that about 60% of the sample was approach. The left frontal lobe was higher than the right. Uh, however, for the first time ever with something like that, we found that about 40%, between 30 and 40% of that sample of normal weight women were avoidant. So the right side uh, was higher, act, more higher active than the left side. This was the only group, too, that also saw a four-time increase in comfort food the week following. Uh, the approach group did not do this. And so even with just getting feedback about ourselves, some people are, are approached, this is a goal, I want to go uh, complete it, and others are avoidant that this is a threat. And so I think there are, and what we're seeing with our current research that we have going on now, is that there are clear individual differences in how people respond to not only stressors, but also goals that are put before them. Um, really interesting. Go ahead, Sonia. Yeah, and that reminds me of the work. It's so funny. We have the best discussions over commercial break, and Lane had to be like, no, 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 we're going to finish this conversation while we're being recorded. So um, when I, uh, you know, there's a concept called fixed growth versus growth mindset, and I want to say that, uh, Dr. Ferries, what you've been talking about is related to this Um and this is the work of Dr. Carol Dweck from Stanford University. And um, she, essentially, it's the idea that if you have fixed mindset, you know, people can either have fixed mindset or growth mindset. Fixed mindset, you believe that your traits, your, your skills, or your abilities are, are essentially, they're fixed. You, there's no, nothing you can do to improve them. You can't get better. You can't um, improve your skills. You can't do anything about it. It's innate. You're, you're born with a, a fixed level of talent, and that's it. Whereas someone with growth mindset... They, they know and they understand that if they put in the effort and if they try to improve, they can actually get better results and they can, you know, let's say they can study for a test and get better grades, for example, or if they, you know, if they see that, let's say they got a B on, in some class, then they know that if they um, work hard and, you know, apply themselves, then the next semester they can get a better grade. Whereas someone with a fixed mindset, they would look at the B and they would say, oh, well, that's what, that's what I was destined for. There's nothing I can do about that. And I want to say, even as it applies to health and behavior change, um, I, I want to say this is, you know, the same mindset applies and that's what differentiates uh, you know, how two different people act very differently to the same exact uh, event. You know, one person would be really encouraged, the other person would, would be very discouraged, and they would be, be very de demotivated. Yeah, that's right. And so we're dealing with multiple personalities, people with different personalities. Um, you know, the fixed mindset and growth mindset is very similar to optimists and pessimists. Mm -hmm. um, and how if something bad ha happens, an optimist, a true optimist, will sort of deflect that uh, bad thing on, on something else. Um, you know, I missed the putt because the sun was in my eyes, it wasn't me type thing, um, or the blade of grass that it hit, that's the fault. 
um, where a pessimist would absorb that negative, you know, happening and say, no, the reason this happened is because of me. Well, the, the same is true for good events. If something good happens to an optimist, they absorb that and say, well, of course it did because I'm awesome. Where a pessimist would something good would happen and they would deflect that. No, um, th- this had to been something else. It's something they did. It wasn't me. And so these things can be very fixed, especially a, a pessimist. One good thing happens and um, they're, they're actually sort of this idea that, well, that's only one time. It's never going to happen again where an optimist would say, no, that's fixed. Good things always happen when I work hard. And so we also deal with a locus of control. Some people, they have a very strong internal uh, feeling of control over their destiny, where some feel, no, that's an externally controlled idea and that I'm not in control. And the beauty of all this for me, from goals to motivation to mindsets and personality, uh, is that the patients and, and, and clients and athletes that we work with are going to be a mix of all of these. They're not going to be mm-hmm. one. They're not all the same. And so how do we accommodate all of these different... Right, because you can't treat all of them the same. You can't use the same words to all types of people and expect the same kind of response. No, I mean, what if you're working with a, a pessimistic, fixed mindset um, athlete versus an optimistic growth mindset athlete? Um, they're both athletes and they both can be very successful. But we're going to have to treat them a bit differently. Right. And I know, Lane, um, you've experienced this, I'm sure, with your clients as well, because I have two where you think that, you know, one, one to one client, they respond very, very well to something that you say. The other person is just you get the complete opposite response. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have some people that like, for example, I can basically say like they have a tough week and I can say, buck up. You know what I mean? Let's let's. Let's go. You you got this, you know, and I I can give them a little, you know, slap on the back and let's go. And if I do that, some people it's going to completely demotivate them, and mm-hmm. they'll say, "He thinks I'm a loser. He doesn't care about me." You know that that sort of thing. And so yeah, you really have to, you know, work hard to uh, kind of figure out the differences. So so my my question for you, Doctor Ferries, would be uh, going back to. And I guess avoidance kind of ties in, I would say, just a little bit. And I could be wrong with um, the pessimistic mindset. Um, and so, so how would we take somebody who has that avoidance of a goal or, or says like that? I know some people who don't even want to admit that they have a goal because as soon as they admit it, that ah. there's that pressure that they have to do it. So how do we get somebody like that to get more comfortable with goal setting or to achieve goals if the whole idea of a goal actually demotivates them? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and to be honest, I don't think anybody knows exactly how to do that. I, I think if we did, we'd be rich because there are a lot of uh, avoidant mentality individuals out there. There is this idea, though, of uh, anti-goals. And so, for instance, I knew a guy that um, he wanted to lose some weight, but he didn't have a bunch of weight to lose. Really, he just needed to stop eating junk food. So what he did was he printed out a picture of a sumo wrestler, and he went and stuck it on his fridge. He said, skip the snack, Steve, is what he wrote on it in Sharpie. Mm -hmm. And so that was an anti-goal. His standard was to not look like a sumo wrestler or not gain weight. And so that was a very avoidant sort of anti-goal mentality. 
that was a threat to him. And so the things that he was doing, the running and the walking and the eating healthy, was not for some uh, growth mindset. It wasn't some, I'm going to get better and better as much as it was, I want to avoid that particular goal. And so I think there is a balance. Uh, we would love for everybody to be more approach and in, in this growth mindset. And I think those folks are easier to work with. But I don't think that all is lost with an avoidant mindset either. You know, so I think about myself and, and muscle mass, and maybe Lane, you can speak to this, is, is there any sort of avoidant mentality of, I don't want to be skinny, or I don't want to have less muscle? Do you think that exists and is okay? Yeah, sure, of course. I, I, in fact, I think I watched a, and I can't remember the woman's name, uh, she was a psychologist, and she actually said that in her research that the because I went into this and she, she was she was talking about you can have kind of positive enforcement of a goal or negative enforcement. The negative enforcement would be like what you're talking about. I don't want to be fat, so I'm going to think about running a well. So the question was, what would motivate you more? Putting a picture up of somebody who looks really really good and saying I'm going to go towards that, or putting up a picture of somebody who looks really really bad and saying I want to go away from that. And my immediate response was, oh, I want the picture of somebody who looks good. Like that's that's like I'll go towards that. And that's going to be more motivating for people. And she said the statistics actually show that it's the other way around, that, that it works better if you have a, kind of that negative reinforcement, and, uh, which surprised me because I think I would actually work better the that other way. That does surprise me, yeah. You think, you think um, a fear would actually not work over the long term. Yeah, so, but that's an example of where science doesn't always work out like we, we, we think it might, you know. Um, yeah. But we also, you have to remember, we view the world through the prism of our own lens. And so... Right. What makes sense to us is complete gobbledygook to other people, and vice versa. So, um, yeah, I, I actually I have I have observed that, and uh, that's interesting thinking about that in terms of using that for motivation for other people. Because, like I said, I think I'm I don't know if it's just inherent or you know being around my parents who were very um, big on goal setting and that sort of thing, but were very encouraging. Like it was never an um, overbearing type situation. But uh, I've always had this, that kind of intrinsic, like goal setting has just almost been like innate for me. Like when I graduated from uh, Illinois and then did some shows and then I was kind of done, I didn't have anything right, right sitting in front of me. I actually kind of like for a few months was, I don't want to say depressed, but I was like, okay, what now? You right. Because I'd always yeah. had these big, huge goals in front of me. And now I was just, I felt like I was kind of drifting. So I had to go find the next thing. Yeah. And something to consider with all this too, just to, it doesn't have to be the extreme ends. It's not like one person is all approach, I'm going to go get this goal, and the other person 100% is fueled by threat right. and fear. Threat and fear is very motivating. Frustration is very motivating. It's a negative feeling state, but it's been theoretically linked and actually um, um, some outcomes of research have found that anger and frustration are actually very approach-oriented. Um, type of motivation. So even though they're negative, they could be quite good for long-term behavior. Not that we want to be angry all the time, but those moments of frustration make us work harder, let's say. Um, but I think what we need to consider too is that the avoidance, so even though I might have a goal that I don't want to gain fat, right? So an avoidant type goal. 
it's it's fat might be some level of threat to me and this is the other area of research that we look at is body fat but it might be some level of threat but my experience does not have to be negative with exercise and diet so the the the, the worry i have is if people start making the exercise and the dietary um, the whole experience because of these avoiding goals more threatening um, and avoidance you know people uh, obese individuals for example or at least ones that have been classified as obese will avoid health care because of some of the threat, especially if they don't do the behaviors that they're supposed to do in their time away from their doctor. And so they just won't go back because they don't want to get the ridicule and that that's a threat to them. And so they, they had a goal, they didn't reach it, and that made them even more avoidant. So even setting approach goals can make people more avoidant mentality. So if somebody does have this avoidant goal, I, I think that's okay. Uh, we just want to make sure the experience is positive. And so could you balance the experience that you had um, and you, you have, Lane, with somebody that has an avoidant mentality? At the same time, I think there are there are motivations out there that we all want to go get. Um, we might have to work to find what those are. And so if I'm working with an athlete, uh, for example, or a lady that wants to lose some weight, one of the first questions I always ask is, why do you want to lose weight? And so they're able to tell me, well, uh-huh. they'll say health, this, 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 and this. And so I had a lady came in and everybody asked the same question. I said, so why did you, in this case, join the weight loss program uh, that we ran at Texas? And she said, look, Mark, I know I'm fat. Um, my husband's a chef. He, he cooks really good, but really bad, if you know what I mean. We drink too much wine, uh, not active enough. And she went on and on. And so I let her finish and I said, okay, but why did you join? And she paused and she mm-hmm. said, my seven-year-old granddaughter came up to me and asked me, Grandma, why are you so fat? Aww. That was her triggering moment. That was, you can't necessarily create that. And what we're finding in my medical trigger research is that um, th- these sort of sparks for change or triggers um, it, it could come from anywhere, and it might not be the goal that the trainer or the coach has set for that client, patient, or athlete. Does that make sense? It might be there could be an approach goal in there somewhere. We just need to help them find what those are. And if it's for your health and not for the way you look, then awesome. Let's do that. Uh, that's what yeah. we're striving for. And we're going to monitor and measure those things along the way. Um, you've probably seen it, you know. Some people are in a weight loss program, but the first day we do push-ups, a mile or half-mile walk tests. We do sit-ups. Some people can't even do one push-up. Yep. Well, all of a sudden, they get all of their results back. They lose 50 pounds or whatever it might be, and they're most impressed with that they could do 40 push-ups. Like that was hmm. their, you know, that was their approach. That was their meaningful goal to them. And so we have to make sure we find the goals that are meaningful to the to the patients and the clients. Interesting. Interesting. Well, let's take another commercial break. Um, I want to follow up on this, and I also want to talk about some, some, hopefully, some practical ways that we can improve adherence. Uh, because obviously, um, that's the goal at the end of the day. So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Hey. 
Hey guys, one of the things that's always on my mind is how can I give back to the industry that has done so much for me? That's why we formed the BioLane Foundation. The BioLane Foundation is a philanthropic initiative to raise money for grad school level research that is going to contribute to the fitness industry. And 100% of all your donations will be paid out to students. If you'd like to donate, you can go to BioLane.com, click on the About tab, and click on BioLane Foundation, and you can put your donation in through there. Or, if you're a student and you'd like to apply for a grant, go to BioLane.com, click the About tab, BioLane Foundation, and you can find the applications online there. Thank you guys so much, and I'm looking forward to all the great research that comes from these donations. You're listening to Physique Science Radio with Lane Norton and Sohi Lee. If you like what you hear and you'd like to learn more about us, read some of our articles, please visit my website at www.biolane.com and Sohi's website at sohifit.com. Thanks, guys. We appreciate you listening and hope to hear more from you in the future. All right, guys. Welcome back. We're going to... Uh, switch gears slightly. We're going to talk about flexible dieting uh, for a few minutes because I think uh, from a dietary adherence standpoint, this is a really, you know, it's very applicable here. Um, I know obviously Lane and I are huge advocates of, of flexible dieting, which is essentially, it's not as complicated as it sounds. All it really is is not putting um, any food, specific foods off limits arbitrarily, um, honoring your food preferences while still placing a heavy emphasis on whole minimally processed foods for the majority of your uh, food intake. And um, I think, you know, back at the ISSN conference, I was talking about dietary adherence, and so was Dr. Mark Ferries. And I think um, flexible dieting is is the way to go. So we should talk about that a little bit. I think, honestly, from an adherence standpoint, it's simply, for me, the case that it's easier for people to stick to because it's practical, because people have lives. We don't live in a vacuum. Um, we have, you know, we like sugar, we like ice cream, we like alcohol every now and then, and to to, to uh, deprive uh, ourselves of those things ultimately is not a long-term strategy. Um, Dr. Marfarius, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think in general, this idea of flexible dieting is, is, is good, um, especially for those that feel they can, uh, they have the control and the confidence to take that on. Um, and so if somebody can eat a small piece of chocolate uh, whenever they get a little craving and then that sort of gives them their fix and then they move on so they weren't deprived from the chocolate and they didn't overconsume it when they had it. Um, there are some, of course, that, that those would lead to binges, uh, these chronic dieters and restrained eaters. And we can measure dietary restraint. And there are several measures uh, that allow us to measure it. And, uh, great research on on men and women that are restrained eaters. Um, the they are they tend to be much more inflexible, and so like you're saying, so we, that can lead to some unhealthy relationships and mentalities right, right, right. of food. And so the flexibility um, does allow that. I do think people need the confidence in their abilities to be that flexible, um, and and the transition from a some people go their diets are completely flexible, right? It's just the food choices aren't aren't the healthiest. And so to some degree, they're eating very flexibly. But then when we start, well, you need to eat some more fruits and vegetables, for example. Well, now it's not as flexible or it is, 
And so how do you create that mentality? And so, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's the way to go. And if you think about people that eat health, you know, eat healthy most of the time, that's what they're doing. They're, they're flexible in, in their diet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I found that, and I know a lot of research supports this as well, um, <clears throat> when it comes to, you mentioned, you know, how come you can have one person eat something like a cookie and they're fine, and then the next person, they have a cookie, and then all of a sudden they have to finish off the entire plate. Uh, and, you know, I observe this with my clients as well. I used to be um, the latter individual. I used to be the person who, you know, I have one cookie and then all hell breaks loose. And I honestly, it's, it comes down to, I think it comes down to, um, what are your inherent beliefs about, uh, your nutrition and what you are and are not allowed to eat. And a lot of times these rules are self-imposed. If they say, oh, but I'm not allowed to eat this. I'm not allowing myself to eat this because I think it'll, uh, get in the way of my fat loss goals. And then they, you know, if it's if they say I'm never going to eat cookies ever 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 again, is that really a realistic goal? No, it's not because life happens. You're going to be at a party and you can avoid cookies all you want. You can keep them out of your house all you want, but there's going to be a time eventually, sooner or later, when you're going to be at a place where there's a plate of cookies staring right back at you. And you know you need to have I I I say you need to have the mental tools to be able to navigate that kind of situation and and not be uh, helpless. And not succumb, you know, don't put the food in control. Yeah, that's right. And there's, there's two keys with that. Uh, one is, is the awareness uh, of this. What are my goals uh, with the eating or what do I like and do I tend to overeat, do I not? And so people, yeah, they have to be aware of where their shortcomings are and then also develop over time the self-control to be able to eat just one cookie when I'm out at this wedding reception as opposed to shoving a bunch in my purse and sneaking them off to the bathroom. Um, and so that sort of self-control mm-hmm. is something you're talking mental tools and mental skills yes. that, that yes, we can develop. And all these executive functions from paying attention and inhibiting a response, delayed gratification, uh, planning and problem solving, these are all very key uh, skills that we need executively in order for that to translate out into uh, behavior. The other thing with it too is um, uh, this is a thought that I've had recently with some patients is that we use the, the term moderation with these flexible diets a lot um, and I'm, I'm, I just eat I believe in moderation and we've heard that. Um, the, the problem I'm seeing with my patients at least is that the way everybody defines moderation differently. You know what I mean? Like, So a lady might say well I have you know, moderation for soda intake for me is six a day. <laughs> you know, that that's moderate. I'm, I'm drinking in moderation. When I'm telling them, no, it's, you know, really one Coke is about a day and a half of your added sugar intake. And so uh, based on the surgeon general recommendations, so, you know, it's really, that's not moderation. You know, really half, half a Coke a day might be better definition based on the research of added sugar or, you know what I mean? So um, helping people define based on what we actually know as moderation might help as well. I don't know if that creates some constraints or not. This is just thinking out loud, but I do find that people try to be flexible and it is healthy um, in the long run, but we have to be careful where they're defining moderation and what impact that has on their, their dietary intake. Right. I think moderation, 
I love I, I use that term all the time and I agree with you. If you just say, Oh, practice moderation, not everyone that doesn't mean the same thing for every every person. So I think especially when it comes to something like nutrition and, 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 and diet, it's important to still clarify, here's what I mean by moderation. Um, here's what I mean by specific numbers. Maybe, you know, for me, it's with my clients, I say 20% of, of your calories for the day should come from, can come from uh, discretionary calories. And that to them, that makes a lot of sense. You know, and then they say, oh, okay, now this is clear to me. Um, but also from an adherence standpoint, I want to bring this up because I thought of it a few minutes ago. <clears throat> As far as, you know, uh, Lane, you're talking about practical strategies with, with clients. I think it's yeah. really important to, one, um, you know, a, a, as nice as it would be to have clients be 100% adherent all the time, that doesn't always happen. And there's going to be a time when they have a slip up or if they, they you know, a cookie falls into their mouth by accident and they're like, oops, <laughs> you know, I wasn't planning on this. And I think um, when that happens, it's really important for the individual to um, have a plan set beforehand, like, a, um, I don't know what to call it, but uh, it, it's a plan for when they mess up. They say, um, you know, I'm not going, I don't really expect this to happen very frequently, but if I do slip up, here's my strategy to deal with that. Instead of being completely lost, instead of being like, you know, I, I know what to do exactly when I'm on plan, but when I'm off plan, I... I, I have no idea what I'm doing and all everything goes out the window. So instead of saying, oops, I'm lost, they say, okay, maybe I got off track a little bit. Now here are my steps to fix that ABC. Yeah. So they still have guidelines to follow even in that case, even though it's not ideal. Yeah, I agree. I think that, um, you know, whatever system allows you to make, be accountable and not go completely off, you know, quote unquote, the wagon, um, uh, I think that, and I, I've talked about this. Whatever, whatever you know, diet or exercise system you choose to use. And Dr. Ferris, you give me your feedback on this. Um, a, a good. It, it doesn't matter if you can't stick to it. So um, my my. Um, so for example, a lot. One of the things I'll get a lot of people say. Well, you can't tell me that. You know, you flexible dieters, you eat these. Pop-Tarts and Pop-Tarts are terrible for you. You can't tell me a Pop-Tart is better for you than a sweet potato or, or something of that nature is usually the kind of straw man argument. Yeah. And I'll say, well, it's all in context. You know, if that, if having a Pop-Tart or, or something like that, of that nature occasionally prevents you from just completely saying, I can't do this, you know, whatever, and going off the deep end, then it is better because it's improving your adherence. And by the same token, I had a person who I was trying to get, they, one of their goals was to get better body composition. And they told me that the particular style of lifting that I was having them do for hypertrophy, they just weren't enjoying it. And I found them skipping sessions. Interesting. And so I talked to them about, well, okay, well, what, what do you enjoy? And what they enjoyed was something that I wouldn't consider optimal for hypertrophy, but it was better than them missing sessions. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to incorporate more of it into their program design. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you're both hitting on something that I find really important is now I'm training for adherence and not just for outcomes. I'm training for the person and their success and not just for a particular finite goal that I expect everybody to have or to accomplish. And I think to me, that's if every trainer and coach and doctor was minded that way, I think we'd have a much 
better success rate um, with this patient-centered, this client-centered type um, training mechanism or mentality. And so I, I think that's really, really key is to accommodate based on the behavior. You know, I had a, a Dr. Jim Anessi in Atlanta, you know, when I was first training trainers and working with the trainers and actually training myself out in the Atlanta area, um, is definitely more functionally minded, right? Where, you know, somebody has a particular goal and like you said, with hypertrophy, I might have sort of an ideal way for you to get there that's very functional for that function, for that goal. And, mm-hmm. and so it might be this many sets and this much weight, but as Dr. Nessi told me years ago, was if, but if that causes them to drop out because they don't have the ability to tolerate discomfort, mm-hmm. then are you really doing the best that you can? And, and it, it, I was defiant to that for a little while because then it was like, well, it didn't make sense for me to lower the weight because this is what they have to do to get to their goal. Mm-hmm. But then over years, and the more I thought about it was that, God, it makes so much sense to, I'm here for the person. I'm here for them. I'm here to build that relationship and get them moving forward. And if it's doing a new hypertrophy workout that's, that they don't hate, then, you know, let's do that. And we know the, the shortcomings. Well, I get as big as I possibly could if I don't do the workout that Lane told me. Well, no, but I can still get better. I can still improve. I can gain the confidence I need from this different one, and I cannot hate it. And I think that's probably an important um, mentality that most coaches, trainers, and doctors should have. Uh, I think, you know, uh, as trainers and coaches, it can be very difficult to stray from what you believe is the best strategy for an individual uh, and striking that fine balance between, okay, I'm going to make this compromise. This is not my preferred way of doing things, but it's obviously not working for you. So we need to find some place in the middle where we can agree. But um, not only that, but I think it's with workouts, with, with diet, with any kind of, um, when it comes to behavior change, I think what's far more important than doing what's considered optimal is getting in the reps. Uh, that's what I like to call it, getting in the success reps. You know, if you miss a workout, that can be very discouraging. If you miss a string of workouts, that's incredibly discouraging. So even if it's not the best workout for you and that's not going to get you the most optimal uh, results, maybe, you know, if you prefer um, – Lane, don't roll your eyes. If you prefer Zumba over sprints – and that's the only way you're going to get in some form of, of cardio, then maybe just do that. And, you know, if, if, you're, if you know if I prescribe sprints for you and you know you, you're going to miss it three days of the week or two days of the week, but if you do Zumba, you're going to show up every single day, you know, you're going to be the first person to show up and the last person to leave, then I think from a, um, you know, a self-confidence standpoint, a motivation standpoint, I think that's far more helpful in the long run. Well, yeah, and that's, I mean, this is what separates the, fitness, health, and athlete coach from just some online program, right? I mean, if, if the trainer or the coach is not doing this sort of modification with their expertise, then I could just go online and get a program. Um, and this shows the importance of having a trainer that's a professional that's good, a coach that's Absolutely. good that understands. And if a coach is just doing the same thing, just like an online program, and saying, no, you have to do this, and are very rigid in that thinking, uh, in that prescription, then that's no different. It's just a human form of an online program that I can go print off and do on my own. Right. Uh, which we know that that doesn't work near as well. Exactly. Uh, and I, as I, having I, a coach that can modify and work with the person. It's just there's not enough professionals out there trying to take on this sort of mentality and 
finding the balance between what they believe in. Because to be honest, uh, having this sort of flexible mentality, so to speak, for the trainer can also make their job not as fun. And now, now I got to figure out how to do this and I don't know how to work with this. That can be, if we go back to approach avoiding goals with our clients, mm-hmm. uh, I see it with doctors all the time. The doctors I consult with that are, that are facing burnout and now suicide rates are increasing up towards a 400% in, in, in wow. female and women doctors um, compared to other professions. And so uh, how do they handle the stress of the job and trying to work and maximize the success of their patients and clients, yet keeping themselves motivated and keeping themselves going, what drives me going? And we find that the relationships, the empathy uh, for our clients is, is crucial even though setting these sort of certain uh, rigid goals and these um, programs can create a loss of empathy in the in the doctor in the health professional, and we have to be careful about that. So, so are, do you mean to say that if I were to, <clears throat> uh, for my clients, let's say my online clients, I say everyone has to do things this one exact way, and you cannot deviate. And let's say half of them don't can't stick to the program. That in turn would be negatively affect me as the coach. Well, yeah, it could, right? I mean, how do you interpret that? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Lane, I never thought about it from that perspective. I never thought, I'm always thinking, how do I increase dietary adherence from the client's perspective and how do I help them? But I never think about myself as the coach, but I really like that angle. Yeah, for sure. Well, anything you can do to to improve yourself, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of the point, but we get lost sometimes because we think so much about improving other people. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. That we actually that reminds me. Um, you know, there's a book for the listeners out there. It's a really great book called The Happiness Advantage by Sean. Uh, I want to say it's, it's Acker. I don't. I don't quite know how to pronounce his last name, but um, he was talking about. Um, he writes about the seven principles of happiness to be happy. And uh, he was talking about how he got, you know, he became very successful off of his book and he was giving all these tours to uh, around the country, different companies, seminars, etc. And over the over an, a span of a few months, he realized that he was so busy teaching people, other people how to be happy that he was making himself miserable. And I think when it comes to um, coaches, we do the same thing. Yeah. You know, we neglect ourselves, we run ourselves into the ground while teaching, while trying to teach others about balance and, and giving ourselves a break. And we're not, we're, we're being way too hard on ourselves. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I, uh, I mean, we were just, Dr. Ferris was just talking about suicide rates in doctors. Yeah. So that's, that's interesting. Um, Dr. Ferris, we're going to have to wrap this up, but I wanted to um, ask you, so uh, we always like to give our, 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 our listeners take home points. So... Are there any, I hate to say like quick tips or anything like that, because obviously everything's nuanced and complex, but is there anything we can do just that we can incorporate into our daily lives to help ourselves improve adherence, especially for that kind of personality where maybe it's not in our nature to, to, to be adherent, that our goals kind of scare us, that sort of thing. Is there, is there anything we can do to improve that? Yeah, I think so. Um, Again, miracle formula, no, some tips, sure. sure. Um, so one, I think, in, in my area at least, I find one of the most important first steps is to make sure that your standards that you set are realistic mm-hmm. um, from, from moment to moment to long term. And this is goals, but it's also just the standard that you compare yourself to. Uh, for example, one of the most common motivations we might see, let's say, is uh, so why did you come in? Well, I saw an old picture of myself in college, and I want to look like that again, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So 
that might be a standard or they step on the scale and they were told that they need to be this weight, but now they're 10 pounds over that. And so it's a standard that was, was provided or they set a standard for weight loss and I'm going to lose 40 pounds in three weeks. You know, yeah. is that realistic or, or is it not? And so I think step one is to make sure our comparison, whatever we're comparing ourselves to, if it's something tangible like a body weight, um, that's a little easier to compare to and we need to make sure that's realistic. If it's something a bit more intangible, such as this idea of like an ideal self, which sometimes hard to put our uh, fingers around, we still need to try to make sure that's realistic because realistic standards can deflate our motivation and our efforts really, really quickly, especially when we feel we can't, can't match up to those standards. So that, that would be number one. We also want to make sure the input that we're getting that allows us to compare ourselves to the standard is accurate. Um, the problem with body weight, even though the common prescription yes. is to weigh like once a day um, with weight loss, uh, once a week maybe, but the, the advantage of that is it allows us to self-monitor, and I think that's a tip. Make sure we stay aware. Uh, awareness, by definition, is paying attention on purpose, and so we definitely want to pay attention, especially with the diet and even the exercise, how we respond. Pay attention to the emotional responses. Um, how, do you get angry? Do you get frustrated? Are you getting sad or depressed? As we talked about level of effort from emotions. Being aware of the emotional responses, I think, is key, is key because this is an emotional right. journey for many. Right. And so um, if somebody starts feeling frustrated and angry, you know, I'm actually okay with that. But let's just make sure that that motivation that comes from the frustration is geared toward the right behavior and the right actions. If somebody is sad, depressed, despondent, now I'm worried because the level of effort is probably going to be low. And so how do we help? manage and rework and regulate our emotions uh, to the point to where maybe I am at least frustrated or eager, maybe on a positive side. And so understanding that emotional regulation, one, everybody has emotions. Not everybody's happy all the time. Um, and that when we don't succeed, we're going to feel bad, but that's okay. It's a natural part of the process as though emo those emotions tell us a lot. And can we harness the power of those? And so we'd want to pay attention to the standard the input, whatever we're monitoring, make sure that's realistic. Some people will come in and say, uh, they'll tell me, uh, so I ask, why do you want to lose weight? And they say, well, I want to look better. But then they're monitoring the weight on the scale. Uh, uh, right. And I'm like, well, that has, who cares what that does? She said, well, I care. Um, and so if, so then I always bring up, um, for example, if I said, let's say you looked exactly the way you wanted to look, you were healthy, you were fit, um, everything was awesome, but you weigh 10 more pounds than you do now. Would that be okay? Um, and somebody would say, well, of course that'd be okay, because the whole reason I'm doing this is to look better, feel better, be healthy. Yeah. And others would say, no, there's no way. There's no way I could step on the scale and see a wow. weight yeah. that was 10 pounds more. I would just die. And so yeah. the, those sort of mentalities, uh, um, we have to be aware that we hold those, and, and in one case, the monitoring system is helpful. In the other case, the monitoring system is not. If you're doing it for health, then have your health measured. Um, mm -hmm. If you're doing it for your body image, then pay attention to your to your body image. If it's to fit in the dress, then fit in the dress. You know, so mm -hmm. it's, it's trying to match the 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 goal or the standard to the monitoring system. Understanding there is an emotional response, and that we have the ability to do that. Um, and the other the big one beyond awareness, I think the big tip is we want to we have to work on our ability to self-control 
Um, and so whether it's diet or exercise or even self-controlling, delaying gratification, for example, um, there are times we do want the cookie, but we need to delay it, um, delay that gratification right. for longer-term goals. And those skills are crucial for success. Um, and so uh, any little thing that we can do to continue to work on our self-control, and maybe it's uh, not going to sleep with your phone, checking Facebook, and trying to act in self. Who does that? I don't do that. Yeah, or <laughs> something of that. Right there, there, there's this immediate gratification that we get day to day, moment to moment, from everything that, from technology to everything. And so, if we can't remove ourselves from that, if I tell my class, my graduate class, um, they have assignments where they can't check their phone for so many hours, um, and so, or at least not, they can get phone calls. That's it, but they. They can't. Um, actually, my self-control lecture. Everybody puts their phones on the desk, and um, they get all their notifications quietly from Instagram, Facebook, everything. Mm -hmm. But they can't check it, um, and it drives some wow. of them crazy. Yeah, there was one study that, that that came out a few, probably about a year ago now, that had um, students sitting in a room, undergrad students sitting in a room, and um, before they went in, they had tested this little machine that shocks them. And they all rated that, yeah, that's highly displeasurable. Well, they go into the room and they're sitting there and they're forced to sit there and they only make it a few minutes. I think it was eight minutes, something ridiculous, before shocking themselves. Just because they'd rather shock themselves than sit there quietly um, <laughs> without anything to do. And so Matt tells us a lot about the mentality we have. So we have to be able to learn and gain self-control and, and mm -hmm. uh, be patient and these skill sets are really, really important. And probably the final tip, I guess, uh, as we need to wrap up, is back to what we were talking about, motivation. I think people need to come to the realization that, you know what, I'm doing this because I want to do this, not because someone's making me. Um, and then matching that standard, whatever, making sure it's correct, but getting to the realization, flipping the light switch, that the reason I'm doing this is because that I want to do this. I like that. So you're not, so I think uh, <clears throat> when you know you're doing it for yourself versus for someone else or for something else, I, I, I find that anyway, you are able to sustain the behaviors for a lot longer and it just leads to a much more positive, healthier mindset overall. Yeah. And it's meaningful yeah. to you and you're, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. That, that makes a lot of sense. And, and, and I think it can, I think you can start out or, or have some some contributing of I want to do this to make my parents proud or I want to do this to you know do this or that but I think that that's probably short term it's not going to sustain and like so he said that it's really going to be a lot better if you can if you can find meaning I guess uh, for yourself so yeah and that's probably a good tip too Lane is to find the meaning for, for you um, why are you motivated and, and, and pursuing that that's a good that's a good tip as well absolutely cool well, Dr. Ferries, we really appreciate you being on. Is there uh, anything you'd like to, to plug, people you'd like to thank, anything like that? Well, first, thank to both of you. Um, one, Zoe, it's been a pleasure to get to know you since the yeah, ISN conference. It was a pleasant surprise. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Lane, I hear so much about you and so many great things. Um, and so it's, a, it's an honor for me to, to be here with you, and I'm glad that we've met and uh, can develop a relationship moving forward. But... Um, I guess I'm you only. Great things. You hear great things. You must not read Twitter then. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I'll start, I guess. Um, <laughs> the um, 
No, the only plug I have is um, we got several things coming out, but right now uh, I have a blog called fitnesspudding.com. Um, and so what I'm trying to do with that is we just separate fact from fallacy where we can based on the research. And uh, I think it can be helpful for people with behavior because fallacies and can be one of, a, a very big barrier um, and a confusing a barrier to people and oh but I thought I could do this and get the results and anyway can we separate fact from fiction uh-huh. and uh-huh. Um, science from fiction and so fitnesspudding.com we try to accomplish that on the horizon some exciting things to, to make note of <clears throat> soon we'll be starting exercisefacts.org uh, there is already nutritionfacts.org with Dr. Michael Greger where he reviews the latest in nutrition research and does an awesome job with that. Well, exercisefacts.org is going to be sort of a similar idea, except with the latest in exercise research. And I have uh, experts from across uh, the world that are going to be contributing to this and reading the research for the consumer, putting it into a format and terms that they understand and that they can apply and, and learn from. And so that I'm really excited about that. And hopefully, by the first of the year, that will be out, if not sooner. So stay tuned Very for cool. exercisefacts.org. Cool. And Dr. Ferries, do you, are you active on social media at all? Do you have a Facebook page? Do you have a Twitter? Anywhere where people, people can find you? No. Um, yes and no. No, no. I have a Facebook page. Uh, I think I'm searchable on there, but I'm not active on it. Um, Twitter, not at all. Uh, probably the best way um, to get me is through, through the website. Okay. Uh, yeah, and you're welcome to put my my email up somewhere if you sure. want. Sure, yeah, we can do that. Or concerns. Um, you know, talking of the self-control, one pe- reason I don't stay active on some of that is that's one of my steps for self-controlling myself. So, uh, uh, But with that said, there are other ways to get in contact. I'm happy to meet with anybody, and I do have access to those things. And um, if there's more that can go on, then we'll take care of that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on our show, Dr. Fraze. We appreciate, yeah, we appreciate it, and we uh, wish you best of luck, and we're looking forward to seeing more of your research. Right on. Cool. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you.